Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, that's just one example. But there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, And if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, Thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast episode four. Oh man, they they said we never make it. Uh, I'm your host Joshua, and I am joined as always by your co-host Kevin. And I'm really happy tonight to have Cynthia Conley here to talk about all things DC punk and art. I want to just you know I would love to have you sort of talk a bit, Cynthia, about. Um, you know, kind of how you started as an artist, because, you know, obviously there's some works that you did early on that, that got quite famous, especially in the punk scene, but also the fact that you weren't just doing art for your friends' bands, but also like documenting this amazing scene that was going on in DC at the time. Obviously the book that you helped put together has been a a great view into that, but Talk about, you know, sort of your experience with that for us and, and, you know, just tell us and the listeners kind of how you got into it. Are you from D.C.? Okay, wait, now I don't know who's who again. Oh, okay, I'm Kevin. I was the one that was asking the long-winded question. And I'm Joshua, and I just said at the very tail end, uh, I asked if you were from D.C. Okay. Um, All right, so... um, um, I grew up in Los Angeles and moved to D.C. in 1981 when I was uh, 16. Um, so, um, um, and I moved to Washington, D.C. because my mother graduated from law school in California and moved to D.C. to get a job. Hmm. My mom and dad were divorced uh, in the 70s. So, um, so um, I was involved with the punk scene in Los Angeles, and so my my mother before she moved she she moved to D.C. first and left us with like a guardian at her house in in Los Angeles. And well, how old were you when you Washington. first when you first got into punk rock? Um, I guess fourteen. Cool. Because um, I, I seventy nine. So I was born in what is that? How does that add up? I was born in sixty four, but my birthday is September, so seventy nine, seventy eight, seventy nine, seventy eight. Oh, so I went to like shows starting in seventy nine. Yeah. 
in that, L.A. Essentially the first But, I mean, I didn't go to a ton of shows because I was 15. So, you know, I, I couldn't really – I didn't even have money. You know, I barely mm-hmm. had money. So I would take a bus, like two buses, and go to the Starwood, and it would be, like, late. And, you know, my mom didn't really know what I was doing. And, you know, I'd either say I was staying at a friend's house. So that's how we kind of did it, like stay at a friend's house and then take a couple of buses and go to a show. Oh, yeah. Um, so then when my mom moved to D.C. at the end of 80, in the beginning of 81, it was kind of a free-for-all. So I went to a ton of shows by then because I was given a really crappy Volkswagen to drive around to go to school. Um, even though I was – this is even funnier is that I think whatever I was doing was not even legal. And my mom didn't even calculate that because – wait a minute. So in um, – You mean you were driving underage there? Yeah, I think so. I think you could drive when you're 15 and a half with a, a, uh-huh. a guardian, but – Wait, in 79, in 80, how old would I be? I guess I'd have been, oh, in September 80, I would have turned 16. So I guess, yeah, I was old enough. Okay. All right, check that off the box. Okay, right. <laughs> Get that out. <laughs> okay. So, um, so anyway, you're yeah, 16 so and you're show. already just like fully like into punk rock and going to shows and all this stuff. Yeah, because, um, you know, I grew up in Pacific Palisades, and there was a surf scene, mm-hmm. and the surf scene was like dudes, and the dudes, you know, I wanted to surf, and it was like girls didn't surf. They weren't allowed to surf, really. It was like totally uncool. You were like surfer chicks, and I hated that. Like, I wanted to be, like, active and do things. I didn't want to hang around, and I thought that was stupid. So I was sort of, like, at, kind of aggressively looking for something that would speak more to what I was more interested in. So I discovered the music punk scene and it was, you know, it's kind of funny because I just wrote this, that it appeared that, you know, men and women were almost equal, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. at least you saw women in bands and it was like, they were doing things yeah. mm-hmm. um, and it was more active. And so I felt like that was kind of more my calling um, than it was like this surf scene that was, you know, it's just like social circles that you hung out with when you were a kid. But I, I really, wanted to be, you know, I went to this, so I went to this um, exhibit of the Russian avant-garde at the LA County Museum of Art and in maybe 1980 and, uh, or maybe it was even in 79, I I guess I could look that up. And, um, and uh, I was there, I was, my grandmother was Russian and she was involved with the Russian community in LA. And I realized like, this is what I want to do. I want to be, I want to be an artist. I want to be in some kind of art community that's doing something productive and innovative. And I didn't know what it was. And simultaneously I was seeing you going to punk shows. And so I was like, that's it. Like it was like art and, and punk music. So, I mean, I kind of, you know, and I was really into designing clothes. I mean, I was pretty young. I was making my own clothes and doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. You sound awesome. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> so, and then when you, you, you know, got my to... mom left us alone. My mom left my sister and I alone, and we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My sister was more into surfing at that point, like hanging out doing the surf scene. But I was so not into that. Did your sister end um, up like like doing it, like breaking into the? Yeah, she male... totally and got into the punk scene um, later. Um, actually, she's releasing a record of hers. She she recorded a record that she's releasing actually this Friday. Nice. Just on her, she on her recorded own? herself, like, well, you know, she um, did the whole thing. She's this, you know, she plays guitar and writes her own songs. It's a whole album of her music. It's really amazing. So was she She's in, any, really good. in any of the bands uh, early on? No. Uh-uh. So she just... She didn't like, start playing a guitar until, like, maybe eight or ten years ago. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Good for her. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I know. It's totally amazing. And so she started playing and then writing songs, and you know, really good. Yeah, that's uh, definitely send that to us because we'll we'll use some of her music if it's okay with her uh, as lead-ins and things like that. Yeah, shoot, you could interview her too. I'm sure you would. Be, yeah, well, uh, I'll just connect you guys. Excellent. So you got yeah. to, you got to DC. You were how old were you when you got there? Fifteen. Um, I guess I was. I just figured it out. Sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. <laughs> so what was it like I mean, to kind of land 15, there and, but... and just like. All oh, right. Sudden... So, so the right, right. So the rest of the story is: so she subscribed to the post, subscribed to the post, and one Sunday issue in December or January, December eighty or January eighty one, had this issue of like punks in Georgetown, and there were literally like six punks walking around in Georgetown, and I was like, oh well, that's good. And so, you know, I was like, that's fine. So we, literally, my sister and I went to Georgetown. This was in spring break in April 1981. Uh, went to to Georgetown and found this guy, Danny Ingram. And there there we actually, at a record store, he was in the band Youth Brigade. And we were like, oh, we're here. We're, we're, we're from L.A. and we're punk. And what do we do? And he goes, we should buy this record. So it was the Teen Idols Discord number one release. So we bought... We each bought that, and then um, and then this guy John Falls walks in, and he eventually he he's one of the photographers that appears in the band in DC book, and um, he walks in, and he goes, oh man, that's so cool. Well, Danny has to go back to work, but um, do you want to go with me up the street? I'm going to go up to be- this place, Beecher Street, where Ian and Alec live. So we're like, okay, so we take a bus up the street, which is about two miles north, and then that's where I meet um, Alec Mackay and then um, Ginger Mackay, Ian and Alec's mother. And Amanda's mother. Always, there's so you know. There's always a good punk and then, mom story. Yeah, well, she's amazing because she's a writer, and she, um, you know, she, she was almost like a story collector. Like she enjoyed the, you know, she enjoyed life. Like she enjoyed watching it unfold. She enjoyed laughing about it. She, you know, was really into her kids in bands, and we'd go see them. You know, she was serious about it. That's amazing. And it was really, it was really what amazing. What do we do without she, the cool moms of the world? I don't know. They're they're pretty. She's pretty cool. She was pretty cool. She hung out and smoked. She smoked a lot. Smoked a lot. <laughs> smoked cigarettes and watched TV and um, drank iced tea. So that was the um, was the the article on the punks in Georgetown. Is that where that photo of the everyone at Hagen Dawes is from? You know, I don't know. That's Susie um, Horgan, I think, okay, Susie Josephson or Susie Horgan. And she, I think she took, I'm not sure, but she did take a lot of photographs of Ian and Henry and uh, Eddie. And um, I could pull the book out of my bookcase and look uh, at yeah. Hagen Dawes. And they, they worked there. Ian worked there later. I think Henry worked there earlier. Ian worked at the, when I met him that same week later in the week, because he was in Boston looking at colleges because his dad insisted on it. Um, he never ended up going to college, but um, he worked at the the Georgetown Theater, which is um, between the record store and the Hagen dawes Right. <laughs> Makes sense. So, um, and then eventually I got a job at a record store. Um, Olson's Books and Records it used to be called Record and Tape Exchange, I think, or I made a mistake the other day. It's Record and Tape Limited. Um which was between the records, that record store and the movie theater in Georgetown. And also got a job, I think before that, no, actually I got a job literally 40 feet up from the record store, which was a flower stand, which was right near the um, movie theater. And then like 20 feet south at a 
like an ice cream store, another one like a bakery ice cream store, and then 20 feet south of that was the record store. So those are the three places of employment that I had the first like four years that I lived in D.C. while I was going to art school. So eventually I became like the indie rock, which was like the punk record buyer for the record store, which had three or four stores um, during that time. So it was kind of cool. So I bought, you know, I kind of bought everything. So I bought like Henry Rollins' first book he ever published. You know, I bought a ton, like I'd buy 150 and they'd sell out. And they're like, how did you know? And I was like, <laughs> like of course I know. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was really, it was pretty incredible. So um, you alluded to college yeah. really briefly there. You went to Corcoran. I went to the Corcoran School of Art for yeah. four years and graduated with a BFA in graphic design. And it was, it was actually the, it was all on boards. It was pre-digital. The last class I took, I was told about a year ago, David Adamson, who owns now a gallery, he taught the very first, very first class in graphic design on a Macintosh computer, and I took it. Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> it was that was the last year? A Macintosh, like SE, or one of the first Macintoshes, because he knew whoever it was at Apple, and he said, you know, you really ought to get into this art school thing. And they were like, yeah, right, uh-huh. And he said, no, seriously, you should teach, you know, Students need to learn how to do graphic design. So they sent 12 computers to the Corcoran School. Like one day they call, they go, uh, apparently these computers showed up. And he's like, oh, I guess I'm teaching a class. So I signed up for that class. It was pretty funny. It was basically illustrating pixel by pixel. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> it's like funny to think about the Apple most out there. Primitive. Like, Please try our, our computer. Right. We'll send you some free ones. Just, just right. try them. Yeah. yeah. Such a different world. Yeah. That was, that was short-lived. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they still send some out to schools, but it's they're just definitely oh, they not like begging for business. That's for sure. No. Um, so when you were going to our school, you were working at the record store. You also, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, worked at Discord. And um, there, was a, there was some different kind of places to do shows there and other things like community spaces, you know, Talk a little bit about that, because I know it's a, it, at that time, you know, it feels like to me there's been this sort of like fluctuation of like times where it's e- kind of, I'm not going to say easy because it's never easy to run a record label, but easier. And then, but, you know, back then when, when all of you were sort of getting rolling with Discord and booking shows, I mean, you know, all ages venues were like, they weren't a thing. Like you basically like booked a community center or you did it in your garage or your basement you know, talk a little bit because the scene in DC was like way ahead of the rest of the world, as far as I'm concerned, with like kind of dealing with like making sure there was all ages places to go, there was records that were readily affordable, um, and there were always lots of bands. Well, it's funny you say that. So it's not really like that. So in 1981, when I went there, the one record you bought was the Teen Idols in the Penguin Feather store because somebody put it in. There, I mean, not to say that there weren't. There were other places to buy records yesterday and today, records in Rockville, which was incredible. Skip Groff, who was a DJ for a long time, so he he was aware and cognizant of anything new, but then also appreciated old. He was the closest to what I kind of see as like the Rodney on the Rock, but he wasn't a DJ that was operating then, but he had lots of really great 60s records and really, like, you know, he had a wide gamut of, like, music, so you could listened to a lot of different things. It wasn't always punk, but he had really good taste. So there were lots of really good record stores, but, you know, you had to 
you had to have a car, which is pretty crazy at 16. You had a car, you had to drive there. Public transportation really wasn't what it is today at all. And so, um, you know, the scene back then was like, like the Washington Post article. There was like a handful of kids and really was, you know, um, if you look at the band in D.C. in the first year, 1981, and there's a party at Janelle's house, I mean, I met everybody, and then it was like that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, you knew everybody in the scene, and it was probably, okay, maybe 40 or 50, but not even. You know, it was like 40 people, and you kind of knew each other. And, um, you know, I was pretty surprised when I showed up there because, you know, Ian came up and we we're going to do the show, and it was in a bar, and I didn't really understand. But, you know, in D.C., anybody could go into a bar. You just at that point, the legal age for drinking was 18. And so anybody would be able to go, like, unlike in California, to be 21, and you Mm. you couldn't go into Mm. a bar unless you were over 21. In D.C., you can because they serve food as well, so it was a restaurant. So anybody could go into a bar in D.C. It didn't matter what their age. They just had to be 18 or over to drink at that point. Eventually, grandfathered in, you have to be 21. So, um, So it was just so funny to me to think about, like, okay, this guy is 17 years old, And he's going to this bar saying, I want my band to play. And they're like, sure. I mean, it's pretty amazing to think that, you know, if a 17-year-old came to me and I owned a bar, be like, what the hell is this? You know, are they going to, what is this? You know, did your mom know about, like, now it would be a completely different story. Yeah, you guys, like, that's that's We need permission, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, some liability issue because they're underage, you know. Well, it also kind of paved the way for us, though. I mean, like, when... I was a kid in Santa Rosa and bands and stuff like because uh, because we had heard about other people doing stuff like that. We were braver about that stuff. And we would go to like every like pizza place bar. And oh. be like, can we do punk shows there? And oh, sometimes cool. they'd say yes. Sometimes they'd say yes. And, yeah. uh, we, I did oh, a fair really amount cool. of sh- shows there, too. And that's so cool. I never really thought about it like that. But, well, I mean, I was pretty surprised. I mean, in L.A., what I was, you know, the shows I was going to. Everybody seemed older than I was. I mean, I guess that's pretty obvious. I mean, they probably were. (laughs) And then, yeah, although there were some really young, there were some kids who were seven and eight who were going to shows. But, um, you know, everybody was older. They seemed more mature. They all drove cars. They all had money. (laughs) You know, so when I come to D.C. and they're actually my age and they're booking shows and but they're not living like high on the hog, you know, Ian, at that point right when I met him, he was living at his parents' house on Beecher Street, but it's, you know, soon after, like when I started going to the Corcoran in September 81, they moved in October, he got this group house in Arlington, which eventually became Discord, and that became, and the reason was, is because the house was separated, it wasn't a row house, so that bands could practice in the basement, and there wouldn't be, um, you know, there wouldn't be any complaints from the neighbors about sound, because, it, you know, the houses were separated, there was enough space. Um, and the rent was cheap. It was near the Clarendon Metro at that point. You know, so it was public transportation, and it was inexpensive. So that's fan- that's you that know, blows and- my mind because it feels like how many great artists did did we get because they found the house with the basement? You know, like how many artists did we not well, get because they couldn't find a house with the basement? I know. Well, when we moved to actually, when my sister and I moved, my mom rented this house that was a Victorian, a furnished Victorian house, 
Um, and I, my mom called, I remember she said, so where, you know, where do you want to, where do you want to live in Washington, D.C.? And I said, well, Georgetown, because <laughs> that was where the punks were. But then she got this house north of like three hour, I mean, three miles north of Georgetown, this furnished Victorian house. It was pretty creepy and it had a basement. And so I was like, mom, can my friends, because all of a sudden I had all these punk friends, can they practice in the basement? So the summer of 81, you know, um, Faith and Iron Cross and um, Minor Threat might have practiced in there. I don't think they did. They No, they practiced in Lyle Pressler's parents' basement, I think, that summer. And then when Discord happened in October 81, many of those bands moved there to practice, um, including Minor Threat. And so... Um, and so the point is, is that they, they worked hard. So they all had like shitty jobs. I think Jeff worked at a pharmacy, like as a cashier and Ian delivered the Washington Post, the newspapers at night. So from like, you know, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. or some crazy hours like that. And, um, you know, scrounge enough money to put records out. So, I mean, I actually, so I moved to D.C. I, I don't know why, but I guess in this whole same mindset of like seeing that show of those Russian avant-garde artists, I was just like, I need money. So I started just working because um, I needed money to do whatever this art thing was, which I didn't really know what it was, hmm. but I knew I needed money. So, <laughs> so I just started working and saving money. Um, and so eventually Discord put out records, more records like Discord number one and then number two, which was SOA, which came out, I think, around the same time we moved here. And then number three, which was my, the first Minor Threat 7-inch that I helped, like, draw. It was the summer of 81. I was hanging out with Ian. Ian and I started going out the year after, but we were friends and hanging out. And then, you know, helped him drop the, like, lyric sheet and, like, you know, when they printed the covers, folded and cut it and glued them and put them together and hung out in the basement of Beecher Street watching TV doing that in the summer of 81. And then they moved to Discord and continue folding and gluing it. And they did it, you know, 4,000 covers later after the red, the the blue, the green, the yellow, or whatever the color combinations were. I mean, so many records. <laughs> I gave up, I think, after a while. But so I always helped them because it was just sort of, that was just what I felt like you did. And it was super fun hanging out, watching TV Discord was like the first place that I knew anybody who had cable TV. So MTV <laughs> was on at, at Discord in 1981, whenever they started, and you know watched you know MTV and Saturday Night Live and made records. And um, you could take the Metro out there. So I didn't have a car at that point. Later, I bought a car and I could drive out there. But um, you know, when I made more money, <laughs> so um, yeah, so. Um, so it wasn't like it was like flush with like shows and everybody was doing all these shows. There were, there were shows and some of them happened in Arlington at this, um, uh, HB Woodlawn high school. There was a, a photographer who, who has some of his photos, Lloyd Wolf in the book. He brought some bands there like DOA and, you know, you know, at the time it was like, how, how are they, I didn't know who booked that show and how did they end up getting a show there? How weird, you know? And, mm-hmm you know, going to the show and that's pretty awesome. And, you know, so it was, it, it was all over the place and like shows in people's basements and it wasn't always, um, you know, in, in venues, but that summer, uh, minor threat youth brigade and, um, GI, I think at a show at the nine thirty club, which was a kind of a big deal. Cause it was the nine thirty club. And that was there when I remember, and I hadn't been, hadn't been there that long. Cause I literally, went to D.C. in December of 80, then came back in April of 81, and then went back to finish high school and came back in 
at the end of May of 81. And then in sometime that summer, there was that show. I felt like, like a year had gone by and all these people came from out of town to see that show. And it was like, who are all these people? And realized that there was this greater network of punk music and people had heard about it because 930 club probably did better advertising. Um, and so people came from out of town, like Boston and Baltimore to see the show. And then you realize like, wow, there's like, this is actually popular and people want to see this. And there's more going on than just these, uh, uh, scenes in each city and town. Like there was overlap happening that people wanted to see these other bands and go and see them. That it wasn't just like LA was into the LA scene, which, you know, in LA it was like all the LA bands all the time. And then maybe something from New York, but you know, or England, Right, and you it's know? all D- DIY, right? Like, people are printing up lists of shows and passing them around and, and spreading the like word of mouth and, like, seeing flyers. Like, it's, it's kind of amazing. Lists of I don't know. The, the, you just handed out flyers. Right, like, yeah. You, you just, like, you would just do fly. I mean, back then, you would just give a flyer to your friend, you know, about a show. He's like, oh, there's another show. Cool. So I have a ton of flyers I saved because I love the flyers. The flyers were super cool in L.A., you know, I'd fold them up and put them in my boot, and then, you know, D.C., same kind of thing, so they'd be all folded or trashed. So I still have all those flyers in their same kind of, you know, same state they were in 1981, kind of folded up and, and you've done, kind of trashed. And you've but, done art shows with those as well, right? Well, I just did one. Um, there was a – it's just going down next uh, Sunday, October 14th, or this Sunday, Um at Viz Arts in Rockville, Maryland, which right. is part of the D.C. area. Um, and it's they did their 30th anniversary, and they asked curators to talk about something that was transformative in their life. And so I wrote about the discovery of the punk flyer in Los Angeles, how I discovered it. And then that just was like a breadcrumb trail for me to find this whole community that's, you know, spoke to me and, you know, and also the advent of the cheap, cheap high-quality Xerox. So it was around that same time that the cheap, high-quality Xerox machine, you know, it became available. So Kinko's, when I moved to D.C., there was a Kinko's copy in Georgetown, which you know, I don't even think there were any in L.A. You know, there were those print shops, and then you could get cheap copies if you did 100 of something. They were inexpensive. But um, that kind of self-serve Xerox thing completely changed the whole punk thing because you could sit there and make your own flyers and have a really good time and slap something together and Xerox it. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, um, so I wrote Kinko's, about that. And it, what would we have done? I mean, Kinko's was our Photoshop, basically. I know. I mean, it was like your it was your art studio. Yeah. I mean, that's so. you know, and so I write about that. Um, you know, I wrote a short essay about that for that show and. Um, and um, had a whole installation that was like your flyer making area. So they actually got a printer and Xerox machine, and somebody I got somebody to donate a, a, like an older, nice electric typewriter, um, and then just a bunch of magazines and markers and stuff to make a zine or flyer. Nice, nice. So yeah, I posted the. But it's still like empowering. Like a ziner yeah. doing any of that is super empowering, and it's completely different than the digital form because it's tactile and you keep it. Um, and there's something really nice about something that's tactile, you know, if it's like sitting there, you know, you know, on the like table and you can pick it up later and look at it, you know, and you don't have to be, I don't know what it is about digital media, but it seems so edgy and like edgy in a bad way, kind of just like kind of stressful. And maybe it's because I have to work on a computer like we all do all the time. So it's like the least favorite thing for me to be doing is to read something on a computer. 
Right. I have a. I I still have some of the like the original pieces that I did for flyers for my bands where you know I'd laid everything out and glued it to the to the single mm-hmm. sheet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I still have some of those kind of in a file. I used to do a zine and I would go to Kinko's and cut everything out and glue it all and it would you know be like two sides of one sheet and the the finished zine ended up being like I don't know, like four inches thick, just from all the layers of glue and everything. Oh, yeah, right. Totally. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's the best. And then you, you keep the original well, thing, mean, and it's, it's great. What's so cool about it is, is that there was no apology for just being, like, not, not making it perfect. It doesn't matter because it, the, the medium was such that it was just, it looked good that way, and that transformative experience of throw it, putting it on the glass and then seeing what it looks like when it gets Xeroxed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really cool. I mean, that whole process, I mean, it made people artists who weren't, you know, people who didn't think they were an artist. All of a sudden, they were artists. Yeah, you discover that negative you know, and button, and then everything changes. Oh, negative button. I forgot about that. Negative. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so many Kinko's tricks. The uh, best thing ever you know, was putting your face on the Xerox machine. Oh, yeah. We could do a whole show about like how we ripped off Kinko's too. Like at least I yeah, did. That's true. <laughs> that's totally true. Like um, the guy, the Comet Bus. You know how he would he wrote about that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, dropping the counter so it goes back to like one, and you yeah. know he made like five hundred copies. His stuff. I tried to do his tricks because, of course, I did, and they didn't ever work for me. It was like, yeah, packing it like a cigarettes would kind of like boggle the right. numbers. Um, I had a very, like, uh, very complicated scheme <laughs> that me and my buddy would do. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, uh, we, I just always knew somebody that worked at the Kinko's. That's so. less complicated. Very no, that's convenient. Not complicated. Um, so, yeah. so we, I post up now, or I try to, that who we're interviewing at any given time on, on the social medias. And so, of course, Walter is now asking you questions on my Facebook page. <laughs> so I feel, awesome. like, I feel like we're only interviewing so far people who know each other, too, which is kind of funny. Um, yeah, so where's Martin, then? <laughs> I don't know. Martin, I don't know. I don't, he's, he, he goes Wait, on social I... media to post his stuff and then and delete anybody that's trolling him. So. <laughs> um, yeah, right. So Walter's asking what your favorite record on Discord is, and or... He's giving you an out. Your favorite DC band of all time? Oh, I don't think huh. those are fair questions, but they're totally not really that fair. But you know, <laughs> um, I can't. There's no favorite Discord record, but I have to say that you know, Shudder to Think was one of my. I guess it was kind of my favorite. Like, I think Shudder to Think. Like, if I, as a matter of fact, I'm doing a radio show. There's like a now a low frequency radio station in Arlington, which is awesome, and I'm going to be interviewed on in a couple of weeks. And he asked to bring records, and I and I thought it was on Wednesday, so I was frantically putting it all together because I've been really frantic. And um and so I was putting it all together, and I was like, oh yeah, Shudder to think, of course, you know. So <laughs> we should explain what that so, is. Kevin doesn't know what that record is. I got really Wait, excited. Wait, started to think? No, he's no he, he, I was like, he went berserk when you. I was, I was throwing my hands up in the air, doing the like the Jerry Maguire. I just want a big deal. Like I was really excited that you mentioned them of all the bands. Oh, oh all right. Such well, an amazing band. You know, so good and so totally I feel like, amazing. And then so many people didn't really. 
I remember once seeing them in Athens, Georgia, and like all these dudes like trying to like boo them off the stage, and I'm like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys crazy? Dudes. Um, dudes. Yeah, they're they're totally amazing. I mean, there's so many different eras of of uh, the Discord, the whole DC punk band scene that it's like hard to say there's any favorite. But I just have to say that I did go to Shutter to Think yesterday purposely, and you know that's just that was yesterday. That was my mood. Really but that doesn't mean that that's it. You know, Fugazi is obviously incredible, and you know what they, you know, their longevity and their message and their, you know, persistence to um, continue to do what they do and the level for which they did it and how hard they work to make it happen is is incredible. It's kind of funny because you know I lived in San Francisco in 1986 after I graduated from the Corcoran. In 85, I went on a road trip. Um, I got a driveway car, drove to Texas to go see my grandmother, who on my dad's side was, I knew was going to be dying soon. And I convinced Ian to come with me. So he went with me, and he met my grandmother, um, who lived outside oh, wow. of Texas, had been moved out of Texas, which you don't move a Texan out of Texas. She was in Oklahoma and was aghast. And then she... Um, and then he flew back to D.C., and then I went to San Francisco to visit my dad, um, in LA to visit some friends. And when I was in San Francisco, that's where I met Martin and T- Tim Yohannan at Maxim Rock and Roll. Then I came back and then like six months later, Tim Yohannan asked me, can you come out here for a while and work on Maxim Rock and Roll? So I did. And so in 86, I went out, um, for like eight months or so or seven months and worked on Maxim Rock and Roll, lived in the Maxim Rock and Roll house on Clipper street. You're like the forest um, of punk rock. Been everywhere. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And then I was hanging out with Blake, weird. and I was like, you know, you should sign. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. So, so, um, so wait, what was I t- trying to tell you, you about this You were for? telling us about living at the house on Clipper. Maximum no, no, before all that, and you said something, and I wanted to tell you something related to, shit, San Francisco. You took a oh, car. Martin Sprouse. You drove out there, met what? Martin. <laughs> Tim Yohannan? I don't know. Walter. I met Walter around the same time. And then, um, what were you working Kukraniak. on when you, when you worked? When you, what were you doing when you were helping? Oh, that is actually kind of funny because, um, Tim, so that's where I was like, oh, yeah, I know this computer shit. They had a Macintosh SC, and so they were actually starting to do what well, I always felt kind of interesting. It was PageMaker. So I was actually doing mm-hmm. layout, really primitive layout in PageMaker, yeah. but actually all it was was columns. And you just attach the columns to the other columns so that you could print out a page of like three columns. Um, and then we would do the rest of the layout with wax on boards and like glue a bunch of stuff together and it, that would go to the printer. Um, so that's actually my experience before Band in DC. And that's how Band in DC was done. So, um, hmm. and, and it was really funny because the, I mean, it was. I mean, it was really so. I would we would literally get letters from all over the world of like scene reports from like France or wherever, and I'd have to sit there. I would type in the scene report into the computer, <laughs> PageMaker or whatever, and then and then print it out, save it, and print it out. So that's funny you know, because you you know you're kind of like ah technology computers, but you were on the forefront of like also. Digital publishing I and mean, yeah. digital layout. I guess you're totally right, like desktop publishing, because yeah. the band, band in D.C., so I'm there, and then Martin and I do Life is a Bowl Full of Cherries, What Am I Doing the Pit by Murray Bowl, so he wants to do this photo zine, and, you know, I didn't know, Mar, you know, Timogen had, I mean, T- Tim Yohannan had been um, 
like planning this. So all of a sudden there was this like, we're going to do this zine. Cynthia, you and I are going to lay this out together. So we laid out the entire magazine. Um, and it was there that I was like, I got to go back to DC. I got to do this book about the DC punk scene. Cause if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. And who knows what they're going to do. It's going to be all this text and I don't want to, you know, I really didn't want it to be about like, you know, these pair, you know, uh, chapters of all these words. Mm-hmm. Like I thought it would be, it would, I really wanted it to be photographs, kind of like that photo zine, the Murray Bulls one. It was like photographs and little, as little text as possible. And, um, and so that's when I left and went to back to DC and, um, and then, uh, Joey, Joey P who did sound for, um, the nine thirty club and, IMP, which was their company, um, he actually had a, a Macintosh SE, and he lent it, lent it to me. Those were a big deal back then. They were really expensive. I mean, maybe been like fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah, I, I really don't know what people used them for back then. But so I borrowed it. You know, those little like plastic three and a quarter floppy disks, and I recorded with <laughs> my recording Walkman people's stories when I went to shows. And by then, I was booking this club called DC Space, so I'd walk around and record stories at shows. They were, people were just like, you're not making a book. They didn't understand. There was no fucking way anybody was making a book about the DC punk scene because at that point, the only book that was really done at that point was something called Hardcore California published by Last Gasp, and that, that was it. And there were like a couple other ones that were super cool from San Francisco called Loud 3D, which was this 3D that I bought when I was the indie punk buyer for Olson's Books and Records. I, would, I bought that book uh, from Last Gasp, I think that was the distributor for it. And it was a 3D punk photo book. So hmm. cool. I still have it. Um, so, you know, I was, so it was um, recording stories, transcribing them. People didn't believe me. And people were like, I'm not giving you my photos. I don't believe this. And finally, I like twisted enough arms that it's like, yeah, we're doing this. And, uh, you know, was basically started. Leslie Clegg and I got together and I said, I really want to do this book. Do you want to do this with me? And I knew she was an artist and she made a lot of handmade books. So I was, knew she kind of like would be into doing this book project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how the whole thing started. <laughs> I don't know amazing. if that was your question, but I guess the question you really started off was, you know, what was it like in the old days? And I guess what I'm doing is painting this picture that you know, year after year from 81 to 85, it changed dramatically. So by 85, you know, 81, it was super fun. And there were, you know, you knew everybody by 82, it was more and more people were involved and you didn't really know as many people. I got involved with going to art school and it became more like hardcore and violent. And I became less and less interested when it became violent. And so it became the, the typical like thing where the, you know, the women or girls were in the back of the room and the guys were up front being violent and um, and I was really not into that. Um, so I kind of fell out for a while and went to art school. And then in 85, when there was sort of like that revolution summer and rights of spring, that was pretty incredible and embrace. That was totally amazing. So there's, you know, there was like these lulls, I think um, there was like these points of like epiphanies and then kind of these points where I didn't think it was that as exciting. And then, you know, rights of spring and embrace in 85, that was pretty exciting. And so, I went to San Francisco around 86 and that was when I was like, I got to go back to DC and do this because everything had changed so much, even in 86 that people were leaving and going to school. And I felt like all these stories would disappear if I didn't go back and try to record them and collect them. That is fantastic. That is so cool. And, and it's, it's interesting because you're just talking about life and for you, it's just life. But when I hear you talk about these things, like the scene reports, uh, for instance, like those were the blueprints that in like smaller towns we would use to build our scenes, you know. 
Like, wow, that's so cool. Because everything's exposure, right? Like it's what you what you like. I didn't know you could go up to a pizza place and ask them if your punk rock band could play it until I read about it. You know, it just didn't wouldn't occur to me. Um, so getting those scene reports was like. So what year? What year was that for oh, you? Oh man, I'm ninety two. Ninety two ish. How interesting. I got into punk rock. Oh, how was, cool! I was well, younger, so, so Kevin was younger. Kevin. So the band in DC came out in eighty yeah. eight. Um, and so I started in 86, like, you know, the f- summer or fall of 86 and came out in December, on December 14th or December 13th, 1988. I know all this because that's 30 years upcoming this year, which is insane. Um, so um, it, it was, I, you know, it was like I knew enough about, in graphic design because I learned it on boards. This was all done on boards. So again, it was a uh, Macintosh SE send all the, this disc to a photo typesetter who output it. It was very expensive. And they output it on this photo typesetting sheets that were waxed. And then you did these, made these boards. And um, the printing of that book was really hard to do. I saved all my money from working at the flower stand, the record store, and that bakery lived at my mom's house and saved $20,000 to print that book. It cost twenty thousand dollars to print that book. That's well, a very pretty book. It's amazing. Um, I think I well, got. Well, I mean, my that's really nice of you to say. I mean, in I like, mean, in nineteen eighty-eight, it was like fancy. You yeah. know what I mean? Because you know everything was like xeroxed, and you know, and I was afraid that it would like be alienating, so I didn't want to make it too fancy. So you know, it's kind of funky, fancy, and you know, there's no white pages. It's not. It's just like I did it my own way, and. To this like Library of Congress, I wanted it in the Library of Congress because I thought that every single book in the world was in the Library of Congress. So I wanted the Library of Congress catalog number. I applied for it. And I got that. The ISBN because I worked at a bookstore and I knew if you didn't have an ISBN, it would never be sold. It's like the before the UPC code. And if you didn't have that, it would never go anywhere. And I was like, you know, fuck it. I want this book to be sold in places so people can find it. It's not going to be some obscure lost thing. You know, it's not going to just be. I'm not going to be the only one selling this. And so, but I, one thing I didn't do was I didn't price it up high enough so that I could actually sell it to bookstores. So the first edition, which I can't remember was a thousand or 15, it must've been a thousand copies. I only sold by mail order because it was the only way I could even recoup my cost. Cause they were about, well, then it was, a wait, there were 2000 because I remember thinking it was $10 a copy. Yeah. So there you go. I think, I think I got God, my... there were two thousand of the first edition. That's a lot. That's a lot of books. <laughs> for for. That's a lot of books back then. Yeah, I can't but even I imagine them. like printing two thousand records back then. It's been, been crazy. Time. Yeah, that's the... totally insane. I didn't even really do those numbers. I must have known that a long time ago, but yeah. that's totally insane. So the book cover, the cover price. So you can look at your purple one you have there. The cover price of the original one was like twelve dollars, and then the. Second edition was more like fourteen ninety five. Fourteen ninety five. So it's the second edition. Second so, edition. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was crazy because I had, and then I would sell them to people in person. I think for twelve dollars, like, oh, well, because it was a cover price. I swear, I have to go look. Twelve dollars was twelve. You had to pay me directly. To, I was like, God, if I could sell all of them for twelve dollars, I'll probably break in even because, <laughs> which I didn't. You know, so I still was at a loss. I had to print a second printing to break even. Wow. (laughs) 
Well, it's amazing. I so, think about it. It's what, crazy. <laughs> one of the things we've been talking about with both what we had talked about with both Martin and Walter, though, was just the work ethic. I mean, to put out a book is no joke. It doesn't matter what the 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 contents of the actual book are. It's a lot of work. I know. I I have this crazy. I have, and I still do this. I have this thing where I, if I see the, like the final output of something, like I see the vision of what it is going to be, there's nothing that's going to stop me from finishing it. But also what happened was with that book was so many people didn't believe it was going to happen that I got like, it's going to happen. And then I was like, fuck man, I got to do this because I've told everybody it's going to (laughs) happen and they think it's not going to happen. Maybe that's like, your technique. They, so many it's people like, doubted me. Yeah, you throw your hat like, over the wall. You know wall. what? I'm going to prove to them that it is going to happen. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Like if you, so I'm I glad did you weren't some savvy capitalist because <laughs> we, we got it. it. We got this book. It exists. We, we do. We do. I remember because I got my first copy maybe 1990-ish. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, and I did a lot of – I wish – you I know, I'm kind of, of like, bummed. I think that I lost my card catalog of all the people who made mail order because – you know, I think I left it at Discord, and I don't know if they just threw it away. I really hope they didn't. I should go over there and ask, but that was pretty damn cool to what? see all the people on little index cards who opened, who ordered the book. The, the cool thing about ordering anything from Discord, too, at that time, I don't, I mean, even actually when the Well, it wasn't a Discord. Stuff. I'm just crossing wires, but I left it in the Discord office, but it was mine. Oh, yours, you know what okay. I mean? Well, yeah, yeah, for my I, mail order of the book. Right. So, but... I mean, I ordered a copy of the 20 Years of Discord when it came out. Actually, two copies, yeah. one for myself and one for my brother. And I got, which I had remembered this from when I was younger, I got a handwritten note from Amy, you know? I know. It's, which is that, so that was awesome. kind of Ian's thing. Ian was like, everybody who orders something, you write them a note. So even way back when Discord was doing one release at a time because nobody had any money. So you realize that they did... Discord number one, and they got all their money back, and then they did Discord number two, and they got all their money back, and they did Discord number three, and they got all their money back, and they did Discord number four, and they Discord number five, and then six, and then six was, is that GI? And then seven was Flex Your Head, and then that was where I lent the money because it was a 12-inch, and they needed more money. Yeah. So that's why I'm thanked on it, because I lent the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had all your book money. I, you know, like I told you, I had this thing where I was like, I need to raise money. I need to save money because I know I'm going to need money for something. So kind of the cool thing was in 88, in 80, well, 88, when I spent all my money I had, which was $20,000 on a book, I was like, see, I needed that money for something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can it's argue pretty with that. cool. No. You can't. I know it was kind of cool. <laughs> so there's there's some interesting connections right now, and I don't I'm you know we can talk a little bit about politics, but I, obviously we don't have to get too far into that because you've got such a a, a massive um, amount of things that you've done over the years. So I, I don't want to get too far away from your story because your stories are amazing. And um, by the way, um, Mar- uh, not Martin, but Walter wanted to know if you fuck with C's molasses chips. <laughs> tell tell Walter that I swear to God the C's molasses chips. There's a molasses chip thing that Trader Joe's has, and I swear it's made by C's. And I think they just because you know Trader Joe's like has all these amazing products, and they're obviously manufactured by somebody else, and they put their name on it. Yeah, I think that's C's candies. You tell that to Walter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling him. He's joking because um, you know. California, Seas Candies is a California thing. Yep. 
And I, I, you know, but you can get it now, like yeah, outside everywhere. of California. Yeah. But I really think Seas is making a mistake by making it too available because it's like a, it's almost like a, it's mm-hmm. like sort of old fashioned. Like you come from California and yeah. you bring a box of Seas candies. It's kind of cool, when, when, and it's like it makes it special. Well, I discovered there's a, you know, and when they started putting them in airports, so smart. So anytime I go to the, if I land in San Francisco, I go to the one. But I, I, I'm so like cheap that I only buy it if it's on sale. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're kind of expensive, but they're so awesome. So anytime I go in there, there's always something on sale, so I just buy it. You know, it's yeah. like fifty percent off, and they're not. It's not old because it can't be. They can't be that old. No. They just have to need to. They need to move that product. So anyway, he's making a joke because I was eating these candies a day that he and I bumped into each other when I was selling those band in DCs in August. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, so I was, I've noticed... we literally had a stack of books on the front seat <laughs> with a box of C's candies, and I was driving around, and I, I think I posted an Instagram thing about, like, I've got my C's candy, though, the Bandy DC, and I'm going to go sell some books now. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's so fun. To... You know, the thing about that book, which ended up being this, like, 30 years of, I mean, it, that, and just, like, the punk scene and everything is so, you know, and I would say that you probably with you guys too is like that spoke to you know obviously I wanted to be in some kind of scene and the, like be in a community of people but in a way it feeds off itself like the band of DC book I can it's so much fun to say like finally I was selling it to Ingram and all these book distributors and I was like fuck them they never fucking pay me I constantly have to call them and ask for money and why. Because I give them 60% off the cover price. I'm losing money by selling it to them just so I can get it into some other stream. So fuck them. I'm never doing that again. I'm only selling to, like, bookstores directly or record stores when I'm on, like, some road trip or whatever. And it's so awesome. Because yeah. it's like I bring it to the, the indie stores, and they sell it, and no, the other stores don't have it. I mean, now it's like nobody has it because there aren't any stores left, like, that's all that's left are indie stores. But for a while, it wasn't like that. Barnes & Noble, there was all these other stores. And I was like, I'm not going to you guys. Sorry, I'm going to these stores because they know the story, and they're going to make the money on the book, not you guys. Totally. It's kind of fun. Right. Well, I've, I've noticed, so I was going to make a little, kind of bring us a little more up to now, like up to date in terms of timelines. I've noticed that there's been a fair amount of Twitter activity saying essentially Kavanaugh is – the guy that probably everybody hated in the DC punk scene because he went to that school in Bethesda. Oh, um. oh yeah. So the the first post and the only one somebody posted on my Facebook page, he was actually the guy who posted that was the editor for Art News. Yeah. Okay. okay. And then the guy who reposted it was the previous editor of Art News. I kind of was looking into this, going, "Well, that's interesting. Who are those people?" And then it sort of seems like they were involved with the music scene, too. So it's kind of interesting that that's who they are. But, yeah, that's kind of funny. I don't know. You know, I I was actually hung out with Ian a little bit today, and I actually didn't even ask him anything about that. But it did um, – didn't he go to Georgetown Day School? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know his whole story, but I know – I mean, I've just been seeing this, like, from a few different people – on Twitter. Well, he's, he was born in 1964. I was born in 64. Yeah. And I think he went, you know, my mom tried to get us to go to Georgetown day school. So I would have been in the same class as him if I did. And, um, there's definitely some other people who would have some friends of mine who would have been, but you know, I don't know. I haven't even, what's weird about this is, is I haven't even bothered to talk to anybody about it to say, did anybody know this guy? 
because yeah. I guess of course I care, that you I do. Really actually... You're the Forrest Gump of everything. Like, of course you know this guy. <laughs> but I don't really. I guess so. But I don't. I don't really actually care that much because sometimes I don't even want to give that that whole thing yeah. any time yeah. of day or the my energy. Right. Like that's not. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, I don't want to exactly waste my energy on it. And so I. I, you know, until I feel like there's something for me to spend my energy on that I don't. And it's, I guess, um, yeah. I feel the same way. I feel like a lot of these, a lot of the alt-right people, all that shit, like, all they have is my ear, right? Like, that's all I can give them is my ear. And if I don't give them my ear, then they're just like... I just can't, yeah, I, can't, I don't know. I, well, I really don't, I'm really, you know, I guess the pendulum is swinging and I don't, you know, so... In 1987, when I was trying to print the band in D.C., I went to so many printers to ask them if they printed, and I just told them what it was. It's about this D.C. punk music. And back then, punk was, like, weird and, like, scary. You know, it was scary. So D.C. punk music, and there's some nudity. There was this one photo that's all blurry of Thomas Squip, and he's naked on stage. And there's some nudity, and there's some swearing. I don't even know if there is. And so many printers said no, they would not print it. What? It actually took me a long time to find a printer to print that book. And the guy who printed it was originally from the from Czechoslovakia, and he was just like, "I moved here. I believe in free speech. I will print your book." Like, that, literally, like. That's that's. And cool. he's actually like the highest quality printer in the whole DC area. Like all the art people. You know, I didn't know that at the time, but he was super high quality, which was good because, you know, I mean, it was it was one color process. You know, it was, it was totally punk. It was one color process. It wasn't four color process. It was one color. It was black. And then the cover was two colors because it was, you know, as cheap as possible to get what, you know, the end means, which is what all punk is. is like the cheapest possible way to get those end means most of the time. <laughs> right, right, right. Hence the hence the Kinko zines and... and... Right, right, and Xerox covers and, you know, you know, Ziploc bags for sometimes, you know, for records and, you know, that kind of stuff for seven inches. Um, anyway, I, um, anyway, I, I wrote, so that's when I wrote the seven-page afterward, eight-page afterward in the um, new edition of the book, and I wrote about that part. I was like, yes, I'm so glad I'm writing about it. And this is when Obama was still president. I was like, this will never happen again. <laughs> like, but I'm going to write this down because people have already forgotten this. Nobody remembers this. Yeah. And it needs to be, we need to remind ourselves about this because this shit could happen again. And then Trump gets elected. It was like, what the fuck? And then, um, and then, you know, Martin, if you talk to Martin Sprouse about it, he had the same problem. Yeah. He did. Because no, the title of the book, the you book. don't have to fuck people over to survive. Yeah. Um, I think he had a problem with that. And then, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what else he had a problem with, but he couldn't find printers for some of his books. Yeah. Well, and he, he also said that he had no idea how difficult publishing was before he got into it. Well, so that's what Martin and I hung out and did that zine. And yeah. then I was like, I got to go back and do this book. And Martin was like, well, I'm going to do my books over here. Yeah. So literally we both started doing books. Well, I did one and then he continued to do multiple books. And I'd come out to San Francisco and hang out with them and help them lay out books. And by then it was like all computer, computer land. Yeah. So I, looking at your, at your social media, and we're, we're, uh, we've been recording for a while now, so we'll, we'll probably wrap. Uh-huh. And then we'd like to probably invite you back in the next couple of weeks and do kind of a part two. Okay, sure. Kind of up, more up to date Yeah, that stuff. sounds good. 
Um, but yeah, totally. It's it's amazing <laughs> to me, and this has come up. This came up with Walter. This came up with with Martin. It came up with um, my friend Tracy that we recorded uh, for our first episode, who does a bunch of harm reduction stuff. That's amazing. The amount of output of things that you're doing. I mean, it's like you're still doing a, a lot of photography. You're putting on your own shows. You're, but you're also a curator. So you're putting yeah, on other you know, I work. Shows as well. I, so I, I'm actually a. I have a full time job as a curator, and I now have this job that's pretty much like the job that kind of is catered to who I am as the as like the how, what I grew into almost, which right. is this person who is really into like what I've talked about in 1981, community and kind of um, making making something out of nothing. So finding things that are hidden. You know, even my photography hidden in plain sight, that like the ice machines or the telephones or the X's on the ground. And or, when you worked for the stuff, record store, I do that in communities. You used to curate the, the punk music, right? Like you, you said that when you worked at the record store, you were the one that found like uh, the records or books or things like that. I guess so. You know, I, I would never call it curate back then, but <laughs> I call it curator just because that's what you say in, in the art form. But I, um, I guess I don't, I could never use that word for punk, but. Well, yeah, I, I bought records for the store, and um, I definitely made choices that other people probably wouldn't have, but they were, you know, they they sold. Um, one time, um, like, uh, I met Calvin Johnson from K Records sometime during that. It had to have been before, so maybe 85. And he came in, and he had all these, he was doing all the cassettes, and he had all these cassettes, and I was like, wow, this is so cool. You do all this these different, like, records on cassette, and you have one record, which was the Beat Happening record, I said, well, why don't we do this? If you come here on a regular basis to visit your mom, why don't I just take a bunch of stuff? I'll just pay you for all. He was going to leave it on consignment. I go, I'll pay you for all of it. And then you just come back and bring more, and then we'll just trade out the stuff that didn't sell. And he was looking at me like, what? Like, couldn't even believe it. Like, yeah. it was, <laughs> but I was like, that's a fun way to do it because, you know, I knew he needed money, and I was, you know, consignment it was just too much stuff to consign i was like i don't really want to keep track of this let's just pay for it and then you just come back we'll just trade it out whatever's like lagging behind just like let's just move it out of here that's awesome it was really fun so um that's you know you know if you have your ear to the ground or you're paying attention you just know what's going on right yep you know so it's the same thing with art i guess if you're just in a community so I work now called Special Projects Curator for Arlington County, and I'm just in a community, and I've developed these projects, and they're they're just using art to – it's basically something called the Arlington Art Truck where I'm actually – we got a National Endowment for the Arts grant for it, and I have a, a van or a truck, and I design projects with artists, so I curate them. Um, that are interactive that literally take three to ten minutes. So I say instead of doing Instagram, you're actually working with the artist, interacting with them, learning something about their practice, and you learn something about Arlington, and you get to hang out and meet people you randomly would never meet. It's like going to a punk show. That's <laughs> but awesome. But it's not. It's like all the things like that I worked at um, a farmer's market for 20 years you know, when you randomly meet people there and you get more stuff done in like two hours there than you would if you sat at home trying to make connections and call people, you know, because they're all out there. Yeah. And so that's the idea is that you're, you're hanging out in the community with people. That's where change happens and that's where everything awesome happens. And it's like the punk shows. Yeah. It's like well, the it's farmer's market. That you mentioned that because <laughs> we got a similar 
kind of analogy from Martin when he was talking about his artwork. Mm. He basically said that that's his platform. That's his punk band. It's it's short, fast, crisp, to the point, and they're going to play what they play, and basically, if you don't like it, that's your problem. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I never thought about that, but that's totally true, and that's why that's why, that's why it's so successful. Because yeah. what he does, it's just like, what? You know, you can't even... Martin is in like his, he has fine tuned that. Yeah. No, I don't, you know, there should be, I mean, in a way there should be a book and the book could have a timeline of what's happening in the world. And then on the bottom of the book, and then there's the Martin's response. Right. Oh yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because it's like, it's like Martin's history, history timeline. It's like his own history. Totally. Totally. (laughs) God, so, it would be so good. You could have like a hugest coffee table book and it would blow your mind. And afterwards, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself if you yeah. looked at it all at once. That's true. So um, why don't we say let's, uh, let's wrap for now. And what we'll do is set up another time, whether it's you know next week or the week after, whatever works for you, and do a part two. Because I'm getting all these comments now from Martin and, and Walter. Like, <laughs> she's got so many stories. Keep talking. Keep talking. Martin's like, this could be a three hour interview. And I actually said that to you when we were texting back and forth. We could, we could do two well, parts. You could have, well, you could actually, you know, why don't you get Martin on the next one? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. We could have both of you on. Uh, yeah. That'd be great. That'd, that'd be, be really a lot fun. of fun. Um, oh, that would be so funny. <laughs> yeah. so, this so, is a hard one for me because I don't even, I, it's so hard to tell stories, but there's a lot of story. There are a lot so of fun. stories. Uh, yeah. This is a hard interview for me because, like, Kevin doesn't know this, but I'm not cool. So, like, every time you're like, yeah, I was hanging out with Ian this morning, I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was true that I was hanging out with him before I did this interview. Yeah, good. Good. Um, We're glad you made time for us. That's where I was coming from. So, you don't mind if we do two parts? No, I, that's totally fun. Awesome. Awesome. That's awesome. fine. So why don't you text me with this some times really that fun because then that'll, it's good to give a break because then, you know, sometimes, you know, you're just in a different frame of mind the next time, so it might be yep. completely different. Yeah. Well, let's uh, do it. So it's not the fast. same thing. Okay. I mean, I've talked a lot about band in D.C. right now, which is kind of cool because it's the 30th anniversary on December 13th, so that's kind of, um, you know, it, it's kind of blowing my mind, the 30th anniversary. I'm like, man, I'm old. <laughs> I can't believe I just. But got I this don't book. feel that way. I feel the same as I did thirty years ago. So whatever. Yeah, and yeah. your 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 artistic output and your commitment to it has has increased over the years. Yeah, you're so crushing it. Yeah, it kind of has. It's like I've I've kind of actually just uh, you know I'm I kind of am on this sort of tear right now, which is that okay I got to get this stuff done because if I do kick the bucket, I want to make sure this stuff's done. That and one of them is really idea. cool, like. I hope I pretty much I'm doing the talk at the Hirshhorn Museum for the band in DC on December 13th, which is I'm just like okay that's it, you know I've the book is in the Library of Congress. <laughs> I'm going to do this talk at the Hirshhorn Museum, which puts it on this different. It's just recognizing on different levels, you know. We all recognize it, but then it's like nice. the this art world recognizes it and it's a different. It means something different to me. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show today yeah. and talking to us. Sure. I, well, I could thanks. I do this all day. Like, I love these stories so much. Yep. And shoot me a text about times it'll work next week and then also all the scheduled oh, stuff yeah. Yeah, coming up. Because we'll, we'll post it when we post your bio. Um, we'll post what you have coming so that people know where to see you and, and especially when you're doing the book stuff because there's a lot of us. Did I send you a bio or did you just like going to? Send me a new one. Maybe I should. 
I should send you one because I don't know what you have. And then we've got I've got a variety um, of stuff. I've got the old one from the website. I've got stuff from you know Facebook. Yeah, the website things I know. has some funky one. Like I don't know what the website has, but it's like kind of funky. I wrote it out real fast, yeah. but. Send, yeah, send like, us a new one. Uh, yeah. That. yeah, and um, let us. Can you also let Kevin know a, a good picture, whatever picture you like? Because yep. I picked a picture of one of our guests, and they got really mad at me. Yep. So. Oh yeah, well you know this this woman who shot me a photo of mine that I really like when I did the talk in Philadelphia. Maybe Karen Kirchhoff, and she said I can use it. I really like that photo. It's really awesome. So maybe nice. I'll send that to you because it's a. I mean, be I've used it a, a couple times, but it's. It's a cool photo. Um, um, and listeners out there, uh, we're going to have Cynthia back on. So yep. if you have questions, you can go to our Facebook page uh, or Twitter and give us questions about whatever <laughs> you please. And thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.